inventory is seen as a waste. A desperate shortage of ventilators. Several of their pharmacies have reported their supply is gone. We've seen grocery stores uh, scrambling to keep up with demand. Coronavirus has forced a cancellation of many blood drives. COVID-19 is causing shortages of all kinds of essential products. Today, supply chain management professor Nada Sanders is going to tell us how we got here and what's going to happen next. From News at Northeastern, this is Litmus, a conversation with Northeastern University's groundbreaking researchers. We connect what's going on in their labs to what's going on in your life. We're News at Northeastern reporters Emily Arnson and Aria Bracci. So I want to talk about three things that are in high demand right now, ventilators, masks, and pharmaceuticals. But if you could start by explaining how the U.S. got into this shortage crisis in the first place with the way supply chains are structured, just to give us some some background. Sure. What has happened over the years is that we have become increasingly more global, and so much of U.S. manufacturing has uh, sourced and produced overseas, especially to areas like China, India, and other nations, but China and India in particular. And the reason for that has been because of cost. You have cheaper labor costs. You're able to produce it, manufacture it, get sources of supply much cheaper. And because of this amazing global transportation, we're able to get it delivered in rhythm, in sync as we need. And that's part of what's called just-in-time systems or lean systems. Uh, What happens with lean systems is you eliminate waste. But Uh, through the process of eliminating inventories through this pipeline of goods that is being transported, it has helped a lot of companies, executives, look better on the books because they have better cash flows. They don't have as much money tied up in inventory. And so I think over time, there was this greater reliance. Okay, we're going to do development in the States, do the intellectual capital here, but then the production is going to be overseas. And if we know that the deliveries are on a regular basis, well, we don't have to carry as much in stock. Jumping off of that, what has the domestic response to these supply shortages been? Like, what are manufacturing companies in the U.S. doing? I see three pieces in my mind that really need to come together, and they're not. One is the medical aspect, the ventilators, the masks, and of course, vaccines and treatments. So there's a whole host of issues on the medical side. But some of it needs incentives that come from the government that are economic in nature. So as we watch the stock market just kind of do this volatile, silly thing, and I say silly because it kind of reminds me of a emotional teenager and there's just this reactionary. But the economy will come back when we say, have an announcement that we have a definitive treatment or a vaccine. So that to me tells me that we need some government stimuli and incentives to really help that production. So to me, those are the two key pillars. And the third pillar in my mind is one coherent message. And right now we don't have that, right? What we have is this kind of patchwork across the country of governors uh, making decisions, and it's highly variable. But I think if you had one coherent executive order and everybody in unison collaborating, there are so many things that could be done. Ohio, for example, is not anticipated to have a shortage. 
New York obviously is anticipating a massive shortage. I was thinking about a very simple model where basically you share resources because the waves of the disease are not hitting at the same time. So if we had a national response, we could actually uh, share resources, you know, move them as they are needed. And we're not doing that. So recently we've seen American manufacturing companies like GE lay off tons of workers. But at the same time, GE and Ford announced that they're going to start making ventilators. And to make those ventilators, they're asking for volunteers, which a lot of workers that were laid off are really frustrated by. Like, why couldn't they be the ones to help make the ventilators? Um, What do you make of all this and what do you see as some possible solutions? I actually really side with the G workers here, Min. On the one hand, you're laying off workers. On the other hand, you're asking for volunteers. Having said that, I do understand that GE wants to stay in business. This is the point where you need some executive orders, where some financial stimuli come into place to incentivize and uh, help companies be able to switch production processes. Ventilators are a very complex item. It would cost a company like GE a lot in order to retool or work with some of the ventilator manufacturers to scale production. This is not a cheap endeavor. Can you explain that a little more, why it's so expensive to change over? Well, you get into issues of the production process itself and the equipment is very different. Then workers that are on these production lines need to have certain technical training that is very different than making cars. And then there are other overlaying issues, which has to do with, well, we've said we want social distancing. You have to have protective equipment gear for all the workers. And we have somewhat of a shortage of those. And you need everything, even what sounds simple, but like enough janitorial staff and cleaning and all the way through training the workers, making this production line that can actually make this product that is technologically really sophisticated, regulated, then there's testing of each piece of equipment. You know, you've got like 2,000 very sophisticated parts that are going into it. That is why we have the pairings where like GE will work with some of the ventilator companies. They can teach some of these things to GE. GE, on the other hand, would have greater reach in terms of supply and being able to bring that to scale. But it would still take time and money to invest in the equipment. And that's where government incentives come in in order to to do that. So going back to the social distancing and the workers who need protection while they're at these facilities, I know that factories in China were able to add production lines for masks and hand sanitizer within these larger manufacturing facilities um, so they could sustain themselves and supply themselves with this protective equipment. Is that something that's happening in the U.S.? No. Um, you know, we're not seeing an auto manufacturer just throwing a production line to make masks. At least I haven't heard of it. I have seen a lot of distilleries uh, making hand sanitizer. And that's actually a really great example of something that is easy to pivot because basically it requires alcohol, uh, I think hydrogen peroxide and glycol or just, it's a very simple and their big bottleneck has actually been bottles. So you can even see in something that simple that you still have the production issues. 
The shortage of bottles is making me think back to the components that are needed for the ventilators. So if there are all of these parts that are needed to make a ventilator, even if we could produce it domestically, how are we going to get those components? The hope was that uh, you take these small ventilator manufacturers, but they don't have scale. So the hope was that something like a GE could help with that. They have the ability to scale up. So there are a couple of issues that are important to global supply chains. So, you know, I'd mentioned the interconnectivity. One issue that people don't think about is you can't have these bottlenecks, kind of like a garden hose. So any place in the system, if the production is much smaller, it's going to stop the flow, just like if you stepped on a garden hose, right? So when you take something like a ventilator and you take all these pieces, all it would take is one of the components to be in short supply and it would really halt everything. So the hope was that larger entities like GEs are going to have some of that weight, some of that power that they could wield and negotiate to be able to scale. And the other issues to be able to scale up and down. People don't realize how, you know, that's very hard to do. It's not as simple as, again, turning the water in a garden hose or flipping a switch. That's making me wonder, how much of the shortages, would you say, in the U.S. are because of an inability to produce something and how much is because of an unwillingness to produce something? That's, I think, for large companies, which are responsible to their shareholders, they really need cover. So whether it's the federal government or the state government, they could say, well, we were required to do this. But if they make this investment and then they go broke, then the shareholders are going to go and say, well, you know, this is what you guys did. So this is where, you know, we begin to kind of go into government issues. And it's really important because we are at a really unprecedented point in time. So I want to pivot now to the pharmaceutical shortages that we could be facing in the U.S. Um, There have been some dubious reports that these two drugs, one that's used to treat malaria, hydroxychloroquine, and then an antibiotic, azithromycin, could potentially be used to treat COVID-19. And because of these reports that are unfounded, we are now seeing shortages of these drugs. What do you know about the production of these drugs, and can we expect to see more shortages like this in the future? It's terrible. We're seeing a shortage. So it's my understanding that the hydrochloroquine, it's the malaria drug, but it's also used for certain autoimmune disorders like lupus and uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And I've been seeing patients with lupus that are not able to get their medications. I mean, these are these are serious illnesses. So, um, so on the one hand, we have no evidence of medical support necessarily that it works for COVID-19. But we are seeing hoarding. I've been reading a lot about hoarding. E- even physicians that are hoarding it for themselves. This is where if we had regular updates that were factual, uh, I think there would be less panic. Um, zithromycin is it's an antibiotic, easily tolerated. But there's a lot of people with pen allergies that can't take, for example, penicillin. And so they're prescribed that. So what those shortages and how they're going to play out and are we going to continue to see increasing hoarding? Right now we are. And that's that's a major, major problem. A couple weeks ago, there were a lot of reports 
saying that we could see shortages of antibiotics. But is that what we're seeing now? And is that still a possibility? So we've got a couple of things working in hand. We've got the potential for shortages, no question. At the same time, we see the pharmaceuticals bringing a lot of production back, uh, really shift from more of a global to a balance, at least with a local focus. So we do get a large amount from India as well. And with India being on a lockdown, some weeks ago, India had uh, restricted or lowered the exports in the pharmaceutical industry, saving it for their own population. So you've got the, the supply stoppage on the one hand, but then we definitely, on the hydrochloroquine, we are seeing hoarding and then the need from the, the pharmacies to ration. Can you connect the dots for us about why antibiotics are still really important despite the fact that COVID-19 is a viral infection? Oh, they're extremely important. Number one, we will continue to have you know the same illnesses that are not COVID nineteen that require antibiotics. A variety of infections. You know, you need antibiotics pre surgery, and then with COVID nineteen, it's my understanding that there's a lot of secondary infections that come with that. It is not uncommon, even for those of us that might get you know a, you know viral sinus infection, that we end up with a you know secondary infection that. Is is bacterial. So I think when you take the usual use of antibiotics that I don't think is going to stop, uh, might cease somewhat or lower somewhat because we are eliminating elective surgeries, I think, across the country. But at the same time, we're, you know, we're seeing secondary infections. What those numbers are, and I don't know, but I have seen that, I've read that, that totally makes sense. Are there reports that other drugs could potentially run out too? Like what you were saying with the prescribers hoarding these medications, are they hoarding other medications too? Things like vitamin C coming from China, acetaminophen coming from India, ordinary Tylenols, they're hard to get on the on the shelves, Zycam and cold medications. So you can get a lot of this stuff, but you're going to have to wait a really, really long time. You can't get thermometer. Look, but you're not going to be able to get them until middle of April. And it's really, it's really a shame. You know, because if you have a fever, you need that now. You can't wait until April 15th. So another thing that's in short supply right now is blood. I've been seeing a lot of reports that blood drives are closing and people aren't willing to donate right now because they're staying at home. What do you know about that? And are there other essentials that are maybe not being met because of this? There is such a fear that there is this tremendous blood shortage, and I've, I've heard that over and over again. I am concerned that as the situation gets worse, we are going to see more and more of that. I think that people want to help, but they're afraid. And a lot of it is misinformation. And this is where we need the leadership to be out constantly telling us and reassuring us. Right now, we're not, we're not getting that. Think about the test kits and the misinformation. So when you have misinformation across the board, what happens is this overall panic because you're not trusting anything you're getting. So you're just hoarding. The way that we combat that is through a very consistent voice that is giving us information. We're not getting that right now. Are there any other products that you're anticipating will be in short supply? Uh, obviously, we know tourism, what's happening there. 
But even sectors like fast fashion, that was such a huge sector in supply chain management. Everybody wanted to emulate fast fashion, which, by the way, relied completely on just-in-time and lean production, the very things that we had had talked about. How is that going to be affected as we don't have people out there shopping. You know, even I am getting automated ads for like, what are you going to wear this spring? And I think, nothing. I mean, where am I going to wear it? You know, and I think everybody's in that boat. One more thing that at least I was really panicky about a couple of weeks ago was food shortages. And I think that a lot of people, when they walk into a grocery store and they see empty shelves, they freak out that there's no more food. Um, but are those empty shelves a result of a lack of supply or is that a result of increased demand because people are buying things in mass quantities? And if so, do you expect a food shortage eventually? That's a great question. And let's both watch and we could touch base in a month or two. Why? Right now, the food shortages are being caused by this massive demand and hoarding and people being concerned. We even had some oversupply of soy and pork and some of the items that had been traditionally exported to China, say. But there's a big but here. When you think of poultry or some other, you know, meat packing, lettuce picking and and so forth, a lot of the produce is imported from Mexico. It goes through an entire supply chain. A lot of the, as I had mentioned, the meat packing facilities uh, use physical labor that need to have uh, protective gear. And as people become ill, what happens when we have to start cutting production or shutting these facilities down in certain parts of the country? How will food supply be be affected? Because what happened in Wuhan, well, they had to shut down because the workers were all sick. What happens when those numbers begin to escalate in areas of the country where we have the food processing facilities, the canning facilities, the meat packing that are labor intensive, you're going to see a drop in supply that coupled with the demand, it could be really problematic. And that's a concern. I think that's all the questions I have for right now, but I'll definitely be in touch and um, I can follow up with you on that later. Thank you so much, Nada. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Stay safe. Special thanks to Nada Sanders, Distinguished Professor of Supply Chain Management. Sound editing by me, Emily Arnson, with mastering by Anthony Polito. Our editor is David Filipov. From News at Northeastern, this is Litmus. We're News at Northeastern reporters, Emily Arnson and Aria Bracci. And if you subscribe, you'll get a notification when our next episode is available. There's more to come on how COVID-19 is affecting our health and so much more.